Hello, everybody. Welcome to Hold the Line. My name's Joe, and I'm a British force-free gun dog trainer. You can check out my online courses at forcefreegundog.com. The newest course is called Training the T Drill. You can also pick up a copy of my book called Force Free Gun Dog Training: The Fundamentals for Success, which is available on Amazon's everywhere around the world. There's also an accompanying workbook to record your training sessions in. I'm currently working on a sequel to Force Free Gun Dog Training. And I hope it's going to be out maybe in about six months. We'll see. That's all for now. Let's get on with the show. Train your gun dog without force or fear. Motivate and educate. Hold the line is here. Invention, repetition, generalization, motivation. Hold the line. Oh, yeah. Hello, I am Joe Long, and welcome to Hold the Line, the podcast for force free gun dog training. Because I always forget to mention it, I should say I have a book called Force Free Gun Dog Training, The Fundamentals for Success, which you can get from Amazon, whether you are, well, whatever country you're in, in the world, go check it out on Amazon. So this week, I've got an important announcement to make. I hope that fills you with anticipation and a sense of suspense. Hold the line. Oh, wait, so that's our first subject today, my special announcement. So I am going to announce my online site, which is called guess what? Forcefreegundog.com. So on my online site, you can purchase, well, at the moment you can purchase three courses, but there will be many more courses added to the site in days to come. So the three courses that are available at the moment are Reliable Recall, The Clicker Retrieve, and Heal. So the courses are designed to have stuff which is useful for people, whatever stage of training you're at. So I do think that there is stuff which is going to be useful for people, even if they're at quite an advanced level on some of these courses. But equally, the courses do start way back at the very beginning. If you do have a more advanced dog, I would recommend following the courses from the beginning and not just jumping in, say, on week five material because what is in week five kind of assumes that you've done what is in week one and two and so on. So I wouldn't recommend missing bits out, but I do think that there is useful stuff for everybody. The way the courses work is there is new material which is released each week and you'll send an email to let you know that there's some videos and exercises that are now available to you online and you can then work on that during the week and then the next week's material will come out. Now you have permanent access to the materials so if you need to take longer than a week then you can so it's always going to be there for you even once the course finishes you can come back to it again so it just works really really well and i think people are really enjoying it at the moment already and i'd highly recommend that you check it out so it's forcefreegundog.com now firstly i would recommend that you sign up for the newsletter so there's a little box at the bottom of the kind of home page where you can put in your email address and that will sign you up for the newsletter and you'll get to know about any sort of new um, courses which i release on the site there are going to be a couple more uh, courses in the pipeline so there's going to be a course for hpr puppies probably from about sort of eight weeks up to either 20 weeks or six months i haven't quite decided yet but sort of those early months with the hpr puppy and then there's going to be a course which I'm going to work on uh, called about marking. So uh, marking and also advanced uh, some advanced retriever drills 
courses those are kind of next on my agenda because these are where i think there are some holes in terms of what is available for people and training so i'm going to be trying to fill those holes in so yeah do sign up and the other thing to say is that there is a little discount code for you which is hold the line 10 so that's the name of this podcast hold the line and the number 10 and that will give you 10 percent off anything on the website um, that's I think running for about a month so if you want to pick up any of the courses then do take advantage of that all right well that's enough check it out forcefreegundog.com hold the line so I've got a question from a listener so I will read you the question it's in the email and it's from Mads in Sweden so Mads says, hi, Joe. Thanks for a brilliant book and a fantastic podcast. I very much enjoy both and I recommend them to everyone that cares to listen. Thank you very much, Mads. That's very nice. Um, And then I have a question for you and the podcast. I have three grown up Labrador retrievers in the age of two to 10 and a four weeks old puppy, 14 weeks old puppy. I train and compete them for working tests and field trials. They're used for picking up as well. My question is about the recall. There is no doubt that the technique you describe in your book and on your course is really efficient. My two-year-old has a fantastic recall and the puppy's in the process as well. The two older dogs have not had the time invested with a new recall signal, but I guess I will have to do this in the winter months. My dogs have always had a good recall. However, as they advance in their training, it tends to deteriorate when we train on dummies and also when picking up. However, problems arise being as we start working the dog out on blinds in training mock-up trials, working tests, and field trials. I use the recall to call the dog towards me, but not necessarily all the way back to me. It could be the dog has run too far out on a blind without getting the retrieving object in their nose. I think that means smelling, scenting the retrieving object. It has to be stopped, called back, recall, 15 meters, and then sent to the right. Or, as an example, a bird is shot in thick cover, like high ferns, nettles, bushes. The dog is sent to the area and is lost out of sight. The dog is hunting an area, but not any longer where it's supposed to be. To get visual contact with the dog, I have to call it towards me to direct it to the correct area. What I see is that slowly the response to the recall deteriorates as the dog expects to be asked to do more work in the anticipated area. I both compete and judge field trials. I often see dogs working, ignoring the recall whistle several times. It can end up being very noisy handling and the handler will eventually be asked to call the dog home if it is repeated several times. It is not that unusual that a dog sent on a running bird as the second to fourth dog will fail responding on the recall several times when the handler is asked to call the dog home. If the bird is never found, the dog may be out of the trial for not answering fast enough to the recall, which is a shame since usually it is only the first dog down that will be out. So, do you think I should have two different cues? The total recall cue and a come closer to me, I know where the dummy bird is cue. What I'm considering is to swap all dogs to an Acme Thunder Whistle total recall cue and then the Acme 211.5 will be used for direction in the field. I'm looking forward to any input you have. Best wishes, Mads. Right, so, what I would say about this, I understand the problem and I've experienced it myself. So, Basically, the problem, just to sum it up um, in a nutshell, is that when you want the dog, when the dog's out of sight on a retrieve, looking for the looking for the retrieve, and you need to send them to another area because you know it's not where the dog is actually looking, you need to get the visual contact with the dog so they can take your cast. So you need to call the dog away from whatever area they may be in if they're out of sight until they come back into sight. And then when they're back in sight, you can handle them where you want to handle them. So in this situation, the dog is hearing the recall cue and they're starting to come back towards you, but then they're being stopped before they get all the way back to you. 
to complete the recall and then they're being cast off in a new direction and over time i think mads are saying this tends to see the response to the recall deteriorating because the dog knows that it's not going to be able to complete the the recall so this yeah so basically the answer to this is not to always most of the time you need to the dog to complete the recall so and you might be doing this in training you know if you're working on a shoot it's perfect because you're not under assessment so you can easily call the dog back give them, give them an amazingly tasty uh, delicious recall treat and then re- release them to go again and you can make sure that you do that more times than you need to call them back into sight and handle them so that the dog most of the time believes that the recall the dog needs to always believe that the recall is going to result in coming all the way back to you and getting a tasty recall treat they just need to believe that in order for it to be a really great response so what i do i mean i understand the thinking behind having two different cues however to me that would sound like a really massive training task to have to reteach the dog a new cue which means come towards me but don't come all the way to me or come back into sight cue and you know i mean i'm sure it's not impossible but i've just got loads of other things that i want to be working on a training and i wouldn't see that the result of that would be better than what i'm about to suggest so what i would suggest and what i do is just make sure that the vast majority of the time i call it all back to me they complete the recall and they get a tasty recall treat so that it's the only the very you know, it might only be occasionally in an assessment situation where the, I need to call the dog back into sight or maybe a working situation where I need to just call them back into sight and then cast them somewhere else and not let them complete the the recall. Um, and it's, you know, this is the same thing when you're doing like handling drills. So for example, if you're doing like the T drill, then you need the dog to be able to run from your side to the back line and you need that really strong run from by your side right to the back line. Now, if you too often stop the dog in the middle of the T-drill and cast them left or cast them right or even cast them back, if you want to put in that back cast cue um, just so you can train it, then the dog is going to anticipate they're about to be stopped in the middle of the T and they're going to start to slow down because they believe you're about to stop them. So you get, you know, t- training is always about anticipation and if you repeat something too too much and the dog will start to anticipate that thing and then that sees things happening which you don't always want to happen sometimes you do want them to happen i mean obviously you know when we're attaching a cue to a behavior we want the dog to anticipate you know if we say sit and then the dog puts their butt on the floor we need the dog when they hear the word sit to anticipate that putting their butt on the floor means they're going to get a click and a treat so the dogs need to be able to think like this but we have to know that the dog's going to think like this and when we don't want that result we need to be able to confound it somehow. So basically, when you're running the T-jaw, for example, you would always run to the back line way more than you would run, you would stop the dog in the middle and cast left or right or back. You would just want that running to the back line to be really, really strong. So for every maybe one time that you stop the dog and cast them, you would maybe do three times where you just let the dog run straight to the back. It depends on the dog as well. Some dogs need to run to the back more to be able to believe that they're going to continue to be able to to run to that and not be stopped other dogs you can stop them a bit more frequently without seeing any sort of impact on their go out but it depends on the dog and so it's the same thing in this recall situation that you're describing the dog needs to believe that most of the time they're going to come all the way back to you and get a treat and so you need to be able to engineer that sometimes you might need to call them back we don't actually need to call them you're just calling them back so that they can complete a recall and get a treat so that you know the odd time when you do need to call them back into sight and handle them you're going to get that fast snappy response does that make sense um 
because I know what you're describing um, and I always feel a little bit bad when I had to do it in sort of um, assessment situations. I would call my dog back and stop the dog and then the dog looks a bit sort of crestfallen and a bit sort of disappointed that, oh, I'm not going to be able to come all the way back to you and get my recall treat. And you just sort of see the sort of flicker of, of sort of... Um, I don't want to call it disappointment. Maybe I'm putting labels on canine behavior, but that's what it looks like to me. Um, so, you know, in a way, they're having a reinforcer removed. So they're expecting to come back to you and to get an incredible reinforcer for that recall cue. And they're suddenly not going to get that expected reinforcer anymore. So in a way, that's a little bit punishing. And so that's why we need to make sure that we don't let that punishment affect the behavior and that the vast majority of the time we let the dog complete the recall, come back to us and get the tasty recall treat. So we're not, you know, calling them back and stopping them very much at all. Um, so it's about it's about the sort of proportion of times that they're allowed to complete these behaviours compared to the proportion of times that they're stopped and not and not able to complete the behaviour or asked to do a bit more work before they can complete the behaviour. Does that make sense? Um, and the other thing that you can do is in training, you can make that stop really reinforcing as well. So you might just you know, refresh the stop whistle a bit. So I think often as dogs get really, get more experienced, it's easy for us to forget about reinforcing the stop. Like we just, we get into the habit of stopping the dog and casting them on, you know, wherever we want them to go. And it's important, I think, to keep the stop itself reinforced because it is a part of the chain. And remember, when we're dealing with chains, we always want to be very frequently taking bits of them out and reinforcing them separately and not just always running the whole chain all the way through from beginning to end. So it's important that we isolate the stop as a thing that we want to reinforce. So for example, if you've got a dog which really likes tennis balls or re- really likes retrieving, a really great thing I love to do with the stop is you blow the sit whistle dog sits um, or stops and you will click and then throw your tennis ball from a chucker. You know, those really long arm chucker things which can throw miles. Um, that That's a great, and that's what, the way that I teach it in the first place if a dog really likes um, to retrieve tennis balls or chase tennis balls. So um, you can do that or you can throw a massive big chunk of um, cheddar or something if you can throw it that far. You can even run out to the dog and give them their recall treat for the stop. So but it's important to take that stop and to reinforce it separately out of the chain um, occasionally, as well as allowing the dog to complete the recall way more than you stop them. So I hope that's helped. Um, but personally, I wouldn't be training another cue. Just my, maybe I'm just a lazy trainer and I'm just looking for an easy way out. But I wouldn't go to the trouble of training another cue with a different whistle, which I have to then switch in my mouth and all that sort of stuff. Um, but the other thing I wanted to say, actually, before I forget, is to really take advantage of those sort of working situations, which are not competitions. Like when you're shooting, when you're out shooting with your dog, because these are times which from the dog's perspective, it looks very similar to a competition. I mean, I'm sure probably a dog can tell the difference, you know, between a competition and a sort of general shooting day. Or can they? I'm not sure. What are the discriminatory cues between a a competition day, like a field trial and just a, a, a day on shoot? Can the dog really tell the difference? So, I mean, bird game is being shot either way, and the situation is as close as it's going to be to a trial situation. So I think, and yet we're allowed to use treats, we're allowed to use reinforcers on a shoot day. So really take advantage of that because you have an opportunity to teach your dog in this situation, reinforcers are still available. In this situation, you may be recalled all the way back to me and given an amazing recall treat for that. You, You may be allowed to complete that recall, come all the way back to me. So... I think it's a great opportunity to 
you know, think about it as sort of an opportunity to train in a trial scenario. And for force-free trainers, that means an opportunity to provide reinforcement for your dog in a sort of competition environment and in such a way that the dog can't really tell the difference or much difference between a sort of shoot day and a trial day. So, yeah. So anyway, yeah, take advantage of the days when you're not under assessment to uh, recall your dog back and give them a treat. So I hope that helps. Those are my thoughts on that one. Hold the line. I was going to talk about a little thing which has been something I've had on my mind recently and it involves harnesses. So this might be slightly controversial, by the way. I should just kind of put that there. So most of you or many of you may be aware of the whole idea that why fronted harnesses are the thing, the bomb, the thing that we should be using, um, why fronted harnesses don't impede leg movement and all of this kind of thing. So if you're not aware of any of that, I'm just going to kind of summarize it now in a nutshell so that we're all on the same page to start with. So basically, most harnesses, in fact, I actually don't know of a harness which doesn't fall into one of these two categories. So I should probably just say all harnesses are either what we call Y-shaped fronts or T-shaped fronts. So a Y-shaped harness comes around the dog's neck and it has a strap that then runs down between their legs. And then we've got the what we call T-shaped harnesses, which the shape of the front of the harness is more of a T. So meaning that it kind of goes straight across the front of the dog's chest and then still has that bit often between the the, the legs as well. Um, so if you're not sure which you have, just look at the front of your harness and think, is it more of a Y or is it more of a T shape? Is it Does it go up on each side at the top or does it go straight across the top? Okay, folks, it's time for a whistle pause. A whistle pause is when there would usually be an advert from a sponsor. But I don't have a sponsor, so instead I'm going to play you a tune on my trusty Acme 212. Now, the tune there is slightly hampered by the fact that the 212 is just one pitch, but I hope you can appreciate the rhythm. Now, the reason that we've got this beautiful whistle pause instead of an advert is because I don't get any funding for this podcast or sponsorship. I record it, edit it, upload it myself, and I pay for the server. I don't want to get a sponsor because then I have to promote whatever business is sponsoring me. And apart from the fact that I think that most dog products are bollocks, I would lose some of the independence and the freedom that I have at the moment to say whatever I want to say about whatever I want to say it about. But if you want to support me, and if you like this podcast, then there are some ways that you can support me, which will also benefit you, I hope. So you can check out the online courses I make, which you can find at forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon wherever you live in the world. So I really hope you can support me and check out some of this material. Anyway, that is the end of today's Whistle Pause. Let's get back to the show. If you look at the front part of a dog's harness, it will pretty much always either be Y-shaped or T-shaped. And yes, the alleged criticism is that T-shaped harnesses barricade the front legs and prevent them from moving freely. Now, having said that, there is some research 
which has been carried out by the Veterinary Orthopaedic and Sports Medicine Group in Maryland to evaluate how five commercially available harnesses affect canine gait characteristics at a trot using a pressure-sensing walkway. So the five harnesses they used in the study were the Comfort Flex Sport Harness, the Pet Safe Easy Walk Harness, the Julius Canine Harness, and they termed those restrictive harnesses, which for us means T-shaped at the front. And then they also had the Balance Harness and the Dog Game's original fleece-lined harness, which are, you know, which they've called non-restrictive, which we would call Y-shaped at the front. Um, so in, in with the balance harness, it's got a front and a rear clip, but they only used the rear clip in the study. So they used 10 healthy border collies for this. So they've kind of standardized the breed there. Um, and they sort of looked at them, uh, trotting three times across a pressure sensing walkway and began with the dog just on a leash on a collar and then with the leash attached to the harness um, to, to make, has a point of comparison. And the leash was held loosely in all these cases. The dog's not pulling, so that's quite important. This is like the effect of just the harness, not with any pressure applied to the harness. So for each dog and each harness, they then measured or calculated the total pressure index percentage, the stance time percentage, the stride length, and the step length, um, and looked at the effect of the harness and how it influenced all of that. And the results were kind of surprising, really. Well, to me, the results are surprising because what you would reckon or believe, and this is the kind of hypothesis that they had beforehand as well, is that the Y-shaped harnesses were not going to affect the dog's uh, gait, but the T-shaped harnesses would affect the dog's gait. And that's what they expected to find. And what the hypothesis was, was that they were testing it was a little bit more complicated than that in terms of the findings. So they found that wearing a harness does affect gait, kind of full stop. And they said, interestingly, regardless of the harness type, some dogs were found to be highly reactive to wearing a harness. So it kind of varies from one dog to another. Some dogs, um, you know, perhaps those more sort of body sensitive dogs, I don't know, are, you know, quite, um, it affects and to a greater degree their, their gait and their stride. Um, and then they said that even dogs who had been wearing harnesses most of their life and that were believed to be well accustomed to wearing a harness were still found to have significant alterations in gait while wearing harness, regardless of the type of harness. I don't think this means we should all throw harnesses out, by the way, but I do think it means that we need to kind of hold these complexities in mind and not just reduce everything down to something really simplistic. So they found that wearing a harness was associated with a longer forelimb stride length a shorter forelimb step length, a greater forelimb total pressure index percentage, and a shorter forelimb gait cycle. So they have found, they did find that some harnesses affected gait characteristics more than other harnesses. And they found that the dogs reacted mostly to the Julius canine harness, which was classified in their eyes as a restrictive harness, which is a T-shaped harness. But they also found the dogs reacted most strongly to the dog game's original fleece-lined harness, which is classified as non-restrictive, which is what we would term to be a Y-fronted harness. And their you know, observation was that these two harnesses had the most surface area touching the dog's body. So perhaps the reason you know, that the effect is in direct relation to, to the amount of dog's body, which is covered by the harness, so they found the balance harness, which was the most adjustable harness and covered the least amount of the dog's body surface area, appeared to affect gait characteristics the least. But I would remind you all that they were not assessing two clips being in use on these harnesses. They were only assessing the rear clip being used in these harnesses and that the leash was always loose in these assessments. So this is just the harness on the dog. So 
Um, I don't know. Where do we go from there? It seems that they did some research to try to clear things up for us. And they have given us a lot more complexity to think about when it comes to harnesses overall. And if you want to look up this research, by the way, it's called The Effects of Five Commercially Available Harnesses on Canine Gait. That's The Effects of Five Commercially Available Harnesses on Canine Gait. And it's by Brittany Carr, Caitlin Dress and Chris Sink. So you can kind of find that online and read it yourself in more detail. Now, the reason why I've been thinking about all of this is down to seeing dogs at my classes. So... I think that, as I said before, we are all kind of bumbling along in this really simplistic Y-shaped good, T-shaped bad way of thinking about harnesses. And I just think it's way too simplistic and that we need to kind of be a bit more sophisticated in how we think about these things. So I'll give you like my little experience, by the way, is that way back before we knew about Y-shaped harnesses allegedly being bad, I used to sell freedom harnesses to dogs coming to my classes. And these were particularly effective for dogs which were boisterous and pulley and, you know, just very outwardly focused. And owners tended to find they gave them it gave them a lot of control over their dog, these T-shaped harnesses. Now, when all this stuff came out about T-shaped harnesses being really bad, barricading your, the dog's front leg movement, I did think, oh, that's true. It does really barricade the dog's front leg movement. Maybe I shouldn't be selling these harnesses anymore. And I switched from selling the Freedom Harness to selling the Dog Copenhagen Comfort Fit Air Harness, which is still a great harness, because the Dog Copenhagen harness is a Y-shaped harness and it still has that front clip. So there was me thinking, the most important thing is we have this front clip, because it's front this front clip which enables these people with dogs which are lungy and strong and boisterous and interested in other dogs, it's this front clip which gives people the ability to control the dog, which is true to some degree. However, there's a big difference between a front clip on a Y-shaped harness and a front clip on a T-shaped harness. So the thing to think about is what's happening when that front attachment goes tight, what's happening to the harness and what's happening to the dog's body when it swings around out of position and gapes out to the side. I don't believe that a Y-shaped harness used on a boisterous dog which is trying to reach other dogs around them or, you know, jumping up to try to get to people nearby. And that front clip is being twisted so that the the strap of the harness is ending up in the dog's armpit and the front clip is ending up twisted around behind the dog's neck. I don't believe that that's better for that dog structurally, physically, or in any way when you think about it, than a T-shaped harness where the front attachment stays on the dog's chest and the harness stays in position. And just in terms of having physical control over the dog, the T-shaped harness wins hands down there because that front attachment is going to stay on the dog's chest and the dog is going to, you're going to have better steerage over the dog to put it in a sort of nutshell. That's basically, I just wanted to kind of put that out there that I think we need to think about things in a little bit more of a complex way rather than just Y-shaped good, T-shaped bad. I think we had to think about the unique needs of that particular dog and owner and what their priorities are. Maybe they have a dog which doesn't pull on the lead very much. It's just an occasional pull and they're able to control the dog when the dog does pull, in which case a Y-shaped harness would clearly be best for that dog. On the other hand, maybe they have a really boisterous dog which is frequently trying to pull on the lead or they're dealing with a lot of environmental distractions and interest in the environment, in which case maybe a T-shaped harness is best. And maybe a dog, once they are fully trained and walking to heel off leash and they're hardly ever put on the lead, 
on a walk is better in a collar because then there's zero restriction whatsoever around any of their limbs. And as that study did find, wearing a harness full stop tends to affect the way that dogs move. So if you've got a dog who is going to be, well, either not on leash at all because they are off leash training the whole time we're out, um, or they're only on leash for a very, very brief period of time, and the vast majority of the time they're off leash, then perhaps a flat collar is the best choice for that dog. So anyway, that's kind of what I'm thinking about. It needs to be much more tailored to the individual dog, and we need to get away from the simplistic, reductive thinking about Y-shaped, T-shaped harnesses. That's what I have to say about harnesses today, and maybe that's useful, maybe it's not. Anyway, that's all for this episode, and I will be back soon.